The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of the Keep or Cut podcast. I'm Pete Ball, joined as always by our new expert, Chad Young. You can follow us at, at Keep or Cut. That's cut with a K. You can follow Chad at, at Chad Young. And you can follow me at, at Pete B Baseball on Twitter. We're excited to get rolling here on episode four. On our last episode, Chad and I went through our top tens at each position for keeper leagues, which naturally involved a lot of conversation around top talent in the game. Today, we're going to go a little deeper and look towards 2022 more than 2021. The theme of today is what players in 5x5 keeper formats do we envision jumping in ADP next year, thus making them smart grabs in keeper league drafts. We aren't talking small jumps either, are we, Chad? No, not at all. I think when when I looked at the the tiers we were discussing, it it was challenging to find guys who are going to make this big a jump, which is is the fun of this. It's a little bit of a bold predictions thing. It's a little bit of a going out on a limb, but it's it's also how you win your keeper leagues over the long haul is by every year finding those guys who a year later are worth way more than they were today. And it, it, it's so true. And I just want to make clear right off the bat, I am not a Houston Astros fan because by the end of this podcast, everybody is going to think that I'm an Astros homer. I'm not. I'm a Red Sox fan. So let me just get that out right off the top. The Astros had a weird year last year, so it makes a ton of sense that they'd have a bunch of guys who are undervalued right now. I'm, I'm curious to see what names you throw out there, though. So here we go. Uh, so let, let's start out right at the top, Chad, out of players ranked. So these guys are going to be ranked outside the top 25 in NFBC, NFBC ADP right now. So we looked at the NFBC ADPs. These guys are outside the top 25, and out of them, who do you think is most likely to make that jump into the top 10 around this time next year? That's a really good question. And and I started off this research by looking at the last couple of years to figure out how, how much movement is there in the top 10? Because I think one of the things I was really interested in was, is this even going to happen? To be honest, I, I think there's a possibility the answer is no one. Last year, of this year's top 10, Shane Bieber is the only one who made a, a meaningful leap. And he was in the top 25 last year. He was he was 25th. He was the 25th highest or 25th best ADP last year. And he made the leap into the top 10 this year. From 2019 to 2020, Cody Bellinger was in the 40s going into 2019 and then was into the top 10 the next year. 
So there is some precedent for it, but it is limited. And so it is it is entirely possible that the correct answer to this question is nobody is going to make the jump into the top 10 outside from outside the top 25. That's actually my best guess if I had to make a guess. But put on the spot, picking a name, Luis Robber from the White Sox. He right now is going in the mid to late 30s. He's sort of a late third, early fourth round pick in a 12-teamer. And I think he's got the potential to make this jump. And if you look at his season in 2020, through August 31st, he had a 157 WRC+. After that, he had a 21. September 21. Not 121, mind you. 21 WRC+. Now, that measures how far above average you are as a percentile or as a percentage, right? So he was 79% below average for the last month after being 57% above average for the first. Now, what happened to him? He went from a 366 BAPIP to a 204 BAPIP. That that doesn't help. <laughs> but he also hit the ball a lot less hard. Went from a 91 average exit velocity to 83.1. He went from a 314 ISO to a 37 ISO. He went from a 30.8% strikeout rate and 7.5% walk rate to a 34% strikeout rate, 10.6% walk rate. He walked more. I guess that part's good, but everything else dropped off. But he has all the tools. He hits for power. He runs. He has the ability to hit for a high average. The big question with him is it, it's a chess game, right? He's been developing. He's been growing. Now he, he's had to face Major League Pitching and Major League pitch, Pitching adjusted to him, it seems. And he has to figure out how he's going to adjust back. And, and that, I think, is the big question with him. And that's what makes it interesting is if he can build on what he did in that first month last year, he's got a real opportunity to, to make a leap. I guess with Robert, my question is like, we all love him for many of the reasons that you just gave. And, and I think we all think he's sort of on this trajectory, whether he's in the top 10 next year or more likely five years from now, but what is going to stop him potentially from getting to that point? Yeah. I mean, I think it's gotta be the, the strikeouts. So, so yeah, I think the big adjustment for him is going to be around how do pitchers handle him and how does he handle that? If you look at a, a rolling 15 day average of his, the pitches he faced through that, hot streak up until the end of August, the percent of fastballs he was facing was rising and he was facing less and less breaking stuff. And then there's a big drop. It got up to a, a peak of about 40% breaking stuff, or uh, sorry, 40% fastballs and then dropped down quite a bit. And when it dropped down, he started to see more curves and more change-ups. And that's, that's something the pitchers obviously saw they could exploit. And when you look at his numbers, maybe he just had a rough month, right? It's a month of data. It's hard to know exactly what happened, but it certainly looks like pitchers said, all right, here's the off-speed stuff. Here's the breaking stuff. And he struggled with it. So did he spend this off-season working on his approach, working on how he recognizes and, and, and attacks breaking stuff and off-speed stuff? If so, he's going to close that gap. The strikeout rate's going to come down. The contact quality is going to go back up. And he's going to be a stud. If not, or if he did so, but only a little bit, pitchers are going to keep attacking him that way. And he's not going to make the leap that you'd like to see, which doesn't mean he'll be bad. It just means he's not going to get from, you know, low 30s to number seven or something like that. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. I think the speed is what is eventually going to get him into that top group. But you're right that the strikeouts could. I had to look it up because when you said that Robert's WRC plus was 21 in the month of September, I said, you know what? Madison Bumgarner had to have posted a better WRC plus for an entire season than that. Sure enough, he did. And as recently as 2019, there are only 76 plate appearances, but about the same amount of time. Madison Bumgarner had a 28 WRC plus. 
So just random, anecdotal, irrelevant. Robert's incredible, but I thought that was pretty fascinating. For me, Chad, I chose a player of similar ilk. And that was Kyle Tucker. So right now he's ADP 29. So he's right around that same area. To be honest, you know, I'm a big Corey Seager guy. I wanted to go with him, but to me, speed is the difference. I think unless your name is Mike Trout or Juan Soto, if you're a batter, you are not going in the top 10 unless you bring something to the table in terms of speed and Corey Seager does not, whereas Kyle Tucker does. He had a brutal debut in 2018. We all know he then looked really solid when he got called up in September 2019. But last year he was he was pretty awesome. The K percentage nor the walk percentage looked amazing, but they were right at league average. They were fine and everything else was great. 836 OPS. He even had six triples kind of showing off that speed and just 209 at bats, chipped in eight stolen bases, was never was only caught once. RBI machine hits a lot of line drives. I think he kind of profiles at just 24 years old as a guy who could make that jump. And I think like Robert, many people kind of expect him to. Yeah, I think that's a really good call out. They're, they're an interesting comparison. They've had such different paths over the last few years. Tucker's been sort of a, a slow burn getting to where he is, whereas Robert seems to have just sort of emerged and was on fire from day one last year, it seemed, until he wasn't <laughs> towards the end of the season, as you pointed out with uh, with the pitcher comparison. So they're, they're both guys who have the opportunity to do a little bit more, be a little bit stronger, and show something bigger. I, I, think, if I, I think those are the right sort of types of bets to make. You're, you're absolutely right, though, that that speed is a crucial component here. And I looked at a bunch of names in this outside the top 25 group that I was like, oh, I think this guy could have a huge year. And then was like, but it doesn't matter because he's going to steal five bases. And if he steals five bases, you almost can't do enough to then become a top 10 pick because people just want that. They either want someone who is so good, like a Soto or a Trout, like you said, that there's complete certainty around them or they need more than just four categories. And so these are guys who at least bring the potential of all five categories, or if not all five, the one they leave out is average. And that's the one people are going to be most likely to sort of turn an eye against. And we'll have to see. I mean, I think the the question of what happens with both of their offenses will also play a factor because they're both going to have to push 100 runs, 100 RBIs type numbers to make this leap in addition to all the home runs, all the stolen bases. No doubt. And I think even in Soto and Trout's case, if they're not guaranteed 10 to 15 stolen bases, then I don't I don't know if they go that high either. Maybe Soto because of the age, certainly. But yeah, you got to bring something to the table in, in terms of speed. Next section is outside the top 75. So ADP 75 or later on NFBC. And who do you think has a great chance at entering the top 25? So again, we're looking at outside the top 75 in ADP, who this time next year could have an ADP inside the top 25. Who are you going with, Chad? The guy I like here is a guy who not only do I think has a chance to make a leap, but I think he's just being drafted too late, and that's Austin Meadows. Austin Meadows this year is going just outside the top 90. Uh, his average ADP is 94.9. That's the 92nd best ADP on NFBC. And he's a guy who just two years ago hit 291 with 33 home runs and 12 stolen bases. Bryce Harper is going in the top 20 and projects to like 270, 35 home runs, 15 stolen bases. So if you look at Meadows' 2019 season, if I could guarantee you that, if I could tell you, nope, he's going to do his 2019 season again instead of what he's projected for, instead of anything like he did last year, he'd be going inside this top 25 because he's he's that good a player. He was that good a player 
that year. And you look at his 2020, he dealt with COVID. He never really got right. It's you know, COVID's an interesting thing from last year. And we know this just thing from society at large, right? It affects different people really differently. And we've seen it with baseball players where like Freddie Freeman had it. Before the season, there was a sense that Freddie Freeman had one of the worst cases. And he was very vocal about how uncomfortable he was and how, how much energy he lacked. And then the season started and it was like, it was like he had been, was the best he'd ever been. And so... I was just, you look at then Yon Mankata and you look at Austin Meadows and those guys, you didn't hear as much about it being this like terrible case. They couldn't, they couldn't breathe. They couldn't function. But once the season started, man, they were bad. And it looked like they were just completely de-energized, couldn't do what they wanted to do, couldn't hit the ball at all. And so with some of these guys, I'm just sort of willing to write off the year. And that's basically what I'm doing with Meadows. And so I look at Meadows and think, if he hadn't done that last year, if we were just drafting him off of his 2019, he'd be going a lot earlier, I think. And I'd be way more certain about what he's going to do in the future. And so I look at him and it's like, yeah, I'll take him in the 90s and, and be very happy with a guy who has a top 25 bat in him if everything goes right. And we're noticing a trend here, right? Meadows, Robert, and Tucker, you know, these guys do bring some speed to the table. I think Meadows is a a solid choice here. You're right. If we write off 2020, if 2020 never happened, we're drafting Austin Meadows a lot higher. And yet it did happen. And he suffered from COVID and he suffered from an injury. And really, it was just kind of an overall weird year for him. So I, I think he does kind of profile as a good pick for this. Now, many out there drafting Austin Meadows, Meadows, myself included, are kind of looking to him for some contribution in stolen bases because he kind of flashed that, obviously, in that nice 2019 season. Speed is hard to find. What are you realistically projecting from him in a 5x5 format? Because as weird as last year was, the sprint speed was way down and he only had two stolen bases. I'm thinking 80 runs, 25 homers, 80 RBI, which doesn't really separate him from the pack too much. Maybe I'm being a little too conservative. The 15 stolen bases I'm hoping to get is what separates him. So do you see that happening next year? So I tend to trust the computer projections more than my own, except in very specific cases. And when I look at Meadows, and I'm looking at his Fangraphs page right now, and they've got you know the bat, the bat X, ATC, steamer, zips, they've got all these projections up there. And, and what you're looking at across those projections is something in the area of like a 255 average, somewhere in the area of 70-ish runs and 65 to 70 RBIs with 20 to 25 home runs and 10, 11 stolen bases, something like that. But those systems almost universally are projecting him around 117 games and close to 500 plate appearances. Now, there's two things about that. One is if he actually only plays 117 games and puts up numbers like that, he's not going to make the leap that we're talking about in ADP. Like that won't be good enough. He has to do better than that. And I think that the projection systems in this case are punishing him too much for what he did last year for what happened to him last year. The other thing is that those games and plate appearances, if he gets a full season, and it is so hard to know what the Rays are going to do because the Rays love to, you know, play position games and keep people rested and use a million different guys. So maybe he only gets that 117, 120 games. But if he gets a full season, if he gets closer to 150 games, 
that's it, you know, looking at his numbers, then also you're looking at 30 home runs, you're getting to those 15 stolen bases, and you're getting those RBIs up near 85, 90 instead of the 75-ish range. So there's a lot of room for growth in that projection if he plays full-time. It remains to be seen whether or not that will happen, but I think if I were, if I'm being bullish on him and I'm, I'm being aggressive with him, a, se- a full season from him of, you know, first of all, doing a, a batting average that pushes more towards 270, 280 after he hit 291 a couple years ago instead of the 255 he's being projected for with 85-ish, 90-ish runs and RBIs and more like 30 home runs and 15 stolen bases instead of the 25 and 10 he's being projected for is, is on the table, but only if the Rays, only if he plays like he did in 2019 and the Rays then say, you're an everyday outfielder, you're going to be in the lineup every day, and while we're moving everybody else around and playing platoons everywhere else in the field, you're just out. If, if he ends up as part of that sort of raising of the lineup, then it's not going to happen for him. It's definitely a scary thing to rely on the um, consistency of a raise lineup, but I'm I'm still with you on Meadows. I'm, I'm thinking that they will kind of unleash him every day. I think the talent level compared to the players that they would be funneling in and out at other positions is just so much greater that he's going to be one of the consistent presence you want there. I should look it up. I'm not sure. I thought he was playing pretty much every day in the playoffs, but I'm I might have that wrong. I might just be thinking purely of Randy Rosarena because of how amazing he was. For me, in this range, I went with Jordan Alvarez. He's going around ADP 81. Now, the, the glaring issue with Alvarez, well, really, it's two different things, is for him to enter the top 25 as purely a DH, that is that is rare, to say the least. I don't remember what Ortiz's height was in ADP, but that's kind of setting the bar exceedingly high as it is. With that said... And, and by the way, I don't I don't think the DH is going to change any is going to change. I think he's going to be DH only. Dusty Baker seems pretty confident that he he doesn't want him out in the outfield. So we'll see if he gets any burn at, at first base. The other issue is obviously he's only what twenty four years old, something like that, twenty three years old, and he's had two, surgery on both knees. That's not good either. At the same time, the talent in this man's bat is absurd. He scorched the minors. He was doing so well in the minors he was outperforming teammate Kyle Tucker and beat him to the majors and remember Tucker was one of the top prospects in baseball through 89 games he's had 26 doubles 28 homers 82 RBI a 312 average and a 1.064 OPS I don't mean to just do a big stat dump but in 89 games that is absolutely ridiculous. They lost George Springer, but it's still a loaded lineup. He strikes out a lot, but not as much as you might think. It's 25%. That's fine. He also walks a lot, so he's going to get on base for the counting numbers. I could definitely see him having that monster season at the plate, like that absolute, you just look at the the home run, run, RBI, and batting average, and he's an MVP candidate. And just based on that momentum alone, despite the injury concerns, despite the DH only, he conquers those and, and ends up in the top 25 in ADP next year. I think the boldest part about that is just that he is DH only. If I look at him, he has an upside with the bat that's, that's sort of maybe unmatched, right? There's not a lot of guys out there who are capable of putting up the kind of season he does. I'm a little more skeptical on him because of the injuries and because of the short track record. The combination of those two things is is always a little iffy for me, where on the one hand, I don't know how much to really trust that breakout season he had. 
It was brief, and he hasn't really played since then. Uh, on the other, his knees are all busted up, and I'm not really sure how he's going to respond to that. And, you know, the other day, it was, I can't remember who it was, one of the Astros made a comment about him, like, looking good, walking around. But then Dusty Baker said something about how always they're taking their time with him. And so it's just, I don't really know what to expect. Is he fully healthy? Is it going to take him time to get his, his swing back? I, I have no idea. And so I'm a little bit less all in on Jordan Alvarez compared to a lot of other people. It's, it's not just you. He's got, he's got his fans out there. And I'm just, I see the upside. I really, I'd be very happy to draft him. I'm just a little bit more cautious. And I do think though that that, that util only thing just really hurts. It, it, when I think about a draft or, or an auto new auction or any other sort of circumstance, jumping in on a guy like that is just so difficult because you're locking down a spot that you want to have some flexibility with. And you're locking it down early, which means that late in the game, when if you know you've taken it, you, you draft Freddie Freeman in the first or second round early. You, the draft goes on, and all of a sudden you're late in the draft. You've taken Alvarez, and now another first baseman falls into your lap, and you're like, well, I don't know, can I take this guy here? I've already got two third basemen also, and so I've got my corner infield, and that'll that always. I think people sometimes over overplay that, but it does depress values and it does depress ADP, and so I think it's gonna make it hard for him to make that climb. But if he goes back to what he was doing in 20. 19 and basically puts up a full season of that type of pace, even 80% of that pace, as you mentioned, right? The numbers were insane. So it, it certainly could happen. I also, by the way, I took a look. The the Rays last year played 20 postseason games. Austin Martin, Austin Martin, that's the wrong guy. Austin Meadows appeared in 16 postseason or 20, sorry, again, 16 postseason games last year, but only 53 played appearances. So those weren't 16 full game. So he was he was still playing maybe 70-60% of the time in the postseason last year. Again, I just don't know if that's, you know, lingering effects of COVID. So we'll have to see. That's true. I mean, it, it still could have been that. You know, we know that it, it affected of course Eduardo Rodriguez, who I seem to bring up every single time we have a podcast, but it just freaked me out. I mean, I, it, thank God he's on his feet now, but it obviously, point being, affected him well into the offseason. Could certainly have been affecting Meadows in the playoffs. I agree with you on, on Alvarez about the DH part. I mean, that is really hard to overcome and particularly in keeper leagues where like you could say well maybe it's actually easier to keep a DH in keeper leagues because you can plan for it ahead of time you kind of have an idea of all right here's what's going to be available here's my plan of attack here's what my pick is at the same time when everybody else in the league is filling up those tough positions is also planning ahead it's going to make it that much harder to to kind of structure your roster around already having utility filled I think he could just be an exception with that said Chad let me let me put you on the spot not necessarily for keeper leagues because I think we all know we would pick Alvarez but going into 2021, and I can speak for myself, in a keeper league, I'm going to have a pick where probably all four of these, well, I'm sorry, three of these names will be available, and they're the DH-only guys. And that is, in addition to Alvarez, it's J.D. Martinez, Giancarlo Stanton, um, and it's escaping me, Nelson Cruz. There it is. So of those, can you rank those four for me? Is that too much to put you on the spot here? Where would you be leaning with those four names for 2021? So that's an interesting question. I think if we're talking keeper leagues, it's certainly Alvarez for me as as number one of those guys. And, and Cruz last, just because I, I Cruz is going to retire, right? At some point, that's going to happen. He's going to he's going to hang it up, uh, or he's going to age and not be able to hit anymore. So if in a keeper league, those are top and bottom, and then I'd probably go Stanton over. JD just because 
Boone has talked about Stanton playing some outfield. And so there is a possibility. And now this gets down to like league league rules and stuff. In in Auto New, where five starts is enough for a guy to get eligibility for this and next season. Possibility that Stanton gets those five starts and sticks it and therefore is, can be your outfielder next year as well is just so valuable compared to being DH only. Uh, in If you're looking at a seat where it's more like you need 20 starts to earn the, the eligibility, then... I probably still go with JD or with uh, Stanton over JD just because I don't know they they, they have different risks. Uh, they they're with JD your big risk is that he's just done right. He he talked a lot about the lack of in game video and stuff last year. Last year was a weird year. We've we've talked a lot about in some cases it just makes sense to write off last season. I, I don't have a good read on whether that's true for JD Martinez or not. And so there is the possibility that last year wasn't just a weird year. It was just he sort of emerged very quickly and maybe he's gone very quickly and we we don't really know. And so uh, there's a little more risk there whereas with Stanton it's it's health. If he's on the field he's he's mashing and I have no concern with that. And so if I look at the the downside, if the downside is let's say 80 to 100 games, I guess Stanton could miss the, like the whole season, but a more realistic downside is 80 to 100 games from Stanton instead of a full season, whereas the downside with JDM is he never really gets the bat back. I, I think I'll I'll take I'll I'll play with Stanton over Martinez just for this season. If I were looking pure redraft, I'm probably going Cruz first. He's got the strongest track record, and it, you look at what he does, and all those other guys, it's like yeah, they could do what he does, maybe right. Alvarez has done it, but over a short period of time. Stanton has done it, but not really for a full season, at least not for a while. J.D. Martinez could do it, but he was really bad last year. I, I think I think Cruz, like people sleep on the age. They always do. And he's just really, really good. And until he till he demonstrates that he's not, I don't know, I'll keep rostering him. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a good ranking. I definitely agree with the keeper ranking. I think I would take Stanton over J.D. in a keeper setting, not only for the for the outfield part, but because of what you said. I mean, when Stanton is on the field, he is. it's almost like he's just as good as he's always been, at least in terms of impacting the ball, the exit velocity, the home run distance. I mean, it's all still there. It's just, can this guy stay in the field? I don't mean to spend too much time on this. I do still like J.D. Martinez. I think that there's two things at play, right? It's what you said about, okay, well, he didn't have access to the video room and I, uh, maybe Javi Baez, but I don't know if there was a bigger sort of a bigger player, more upset with the lack of video room access of which he will have back. And also the trade of Mookie Betts, this team was just defeated from the get-go. This was a defeated offense. I, I think it would be more shocking if JD Martinez's talent just got zapped and he is who he was last year than the opposite. I mean, that would really surprise me because he was just 2018, 2019. We're talking about one of the the best players in baseball who was being drafted in, I want to say 2020 drafts, at least 2019 drafts as like a top five to eight player with no speed. So if there's a precedent for, and he had outfield eligibility, but if there's a precedent for Alvarez to do that without speed, that would certainly be the player to look at. Yeah. And in 2019, his NFBC ADP was 6.07, which was the, actually the fifth highest or fifth best ADP 2020, he had dropped outside the top 20. He was around 22, 23, something like that. But yeah, I mean, it is clear that he is capable of being much, much better than what we saw last year. I just think there's some risk there. And I think there, there's some risk in the profile of a guy who is somewhat one-dimensional uh, in terms of being sort of a pure power hitter. He does hit for decent average, but he's he's really lives and dies with that power. And who's going to turn 34 this year? 
and who's never been super, well, I shouldn't say never been super athletic. He hasn't been super athletic for a while. And you just, I know we just talked about Nelson Cruz being 74 years old and still hitting the snot out of the ball every day, but that doesn't usually happen. And I don't know. I, I don't have a lot of confidence in Martinez aging well. Yeah, no, that's that's totally fair. Uh, and he's also dealt with a fair share of injuries, like you said. So next up, Chad, we can, we can keep this train rolling here. We have players ranked outside the top 100 in NFBC ADP who we think will enter the top 50 or have a chance, I should say, to enter the top 50 next year. We're not, these would be, like you said at the beginning, really bold predictions to say definitively, these guys will be top 50 picks. But for this one, Chad, who are you thinking? So I I don't even love my pick here, but I think it's a logical one. And I'm going to just read some numbers before I throw some names out there. So the guy that I am thinking of projects to about a 250 average with somewhere around 17, 18 home runs and 25-ish stolen bases, scoring a lot of runs, not as many RBIs. There is another player who projects to a higher average, more like 275, with more like 18 or 19 home runs, around 25, 26 stolen bases, similar runs and RBIs. The guy I'm thinking of is the 149th best ADP. The guy, I, the second guy I just talked about is the 49th best ADP. There's a hundred pick difference between them. Starling Marte is the guy who's going in the top 50, and Victor Robles is the guy I'm thinking of. Now, there are other differences, right? Anytime you see one of those like player A, player B, here's some blind stats, somebody's lying to you about something. And the thing I was lying to you about a little bit there is the quality of contact these guys have. Robles, when he came up, was had average exit velocities above 85, 87. He was posting hard hit rates over 25% that first year, although it's in a limited sample and then had a barrel rate over 5%. It was around 4 4.5% the last couple years. Whereas Marte is usually in the high 80s with his average exit velocities. He's up in the 30s usually with his hard hit rate. His barrel rates for his career is 6.6%, which Robles has never done. So there is a difference there in, in, in the contact quality as well as their track records. But... Robles is a guy who, even as he stands right now, is projecting to to get in the high teens for home runs and get you 20 to 25 stolen bases. The average is not great, which I think is a little concerning, but he also projects to pretty low BABIPs, which surprises me given his speed. Uh, I'll be curious to see how that that plays out. But there's also some positives there with his, his contact quality. So his first couple of years, his max exit velocity was 108.5. His last two years, it was 110.4, 1010. That's not a number. 110.5 and then 109.2 last year. Last year, his barrel rate fell to 1.7%, but it's been around 45 to 5% the rest of his career. And I, I'm more than more willing to assume that last year was just sort of off for him from that perspective, especially given that his max exit velocity didn't really fall. So it's a matter for him of more consistently tapping into that max exit velocity. It's not going to turn him into, I'm not saying he's going to turn into a 30 home run guy, but I do think he can get back to basically where he was in 2019. And with a little bit of BAPIP luck and not, I'm not even talking a lot of BAPIP luck, just a little bit of BAPIP luck. He, he can post an average that really makes a difference. And if he can do all that, I don't know. I, you mentioned this when we were doing prep for this episode, and I think it's really true. Like, I was all out on Robles. I'm not interested in the guy. He doesn't hit the ball well. And now he's going borderline top 150 
with a skill set that pr can produce a whole lot more than that. And so I'm probably going to end up with more Robles than I would have expected just because of where his ADP is. And in keeper formats, I do think there's a real possibility. You know, he's still young. He is 20. He's not even 24. He won't turn 24 until May. He wouldn't be the first guy to develop a little bit of power after his 22nd, 23rd, 24th birthday. And he doesn't have to develop a lot. If he goes from 17 home runs and sort of the weak contact he has to slightly harder contact that allows him to post a high BAPIP and 20 home runs, or even makes you more confident that he's going to get that 15, 17, 18 that he's projected for, he's way undervalued now. I don't know. I'm not really sure how that happened. I think there may have been so much talk about how weak his contact is, but that, that max exit velocity isn't terrible. And so he's got the ability to, to sting the ball on occasion. He just needs to do it more often. And that to me is, is growth and development. And, you know, this is uh, a phrase. I don't, I don't think he coined it by any means, but uh, Brandon Warren, who covers the, covers the twins, uses this all the time that development's not linear. Guys, it's not just like they were here and now they're here and now they're here and they get better and better and they move up a little bit. They they grow over time in weird ways and guys go up and down and they make leaps and they make they falter. And it's a little bit of what we talked about with Luis Robber, right? He had this great start and then fell flat in his face. That doesn't mean he's now on a downward trajectory. And I don't think we can write off Robles as a, a weak contact, never going to really do enough hitter when he's got a 17 home run season behind him and when he can put up max exit velocities around 110 and when he's got the, the minor league track record he had, which is as a, a good hitter with good speed. And so I think he's undervalued right now. And I think in keeper leagues, again, you know, we, we talked about this from the beginning. None of these are like good bets. None of these are like, yeah, yeah, even money, he's got this. Like, but... You want a guy you can draft at 150 who you might be able to keep and be very happy with a top 50 guy next year? Ro Robles is an option. I love it. That was great. I mean, I, honestly, I'm, I'm a little bit more convinced on Robles now, at least as a, as a late gamble. I mean, look, it was, it was egregious how early he was going last year and the year before that. It was just egregious. And like, look... In, in 2019, it worked out with the 17 homers. And I don't mean to like dance on this guy's grave, but I remember having a back and forth on Twitter with someone where I was like, the 17 home runs, man, that is that is a mirage because this man does not impact the ball. He wasn't pulling it as much as he has, which I want to talk about in a second. But he's just, he just does not profile. He's not going to get the plate appearances. Like he's not, he does not profile as a power hitter. Um, and this guy had to be like the most optimistic person ever. He's like, well, what does it say that he hit 17 home runs with that average exit velocity? What? How many home runs is he going to hit when that average exit velocity goes up? It's like, wow, that's a that's a really positive way of, of looking at this performance because to me, it screams fluke. But you identified a lot of things that I like. And there were some things about Robles that I, I think is actually kind of encouraging. And, and first and foremost is how much he pulls the ball. He pulled the ball last year in 2020, 47% of the time. That's, that's about... 10% over the league average. I mean, you're someone who doesn't impact the ball that hard. If you can just kind of yank it out, get it over the, the left field wall, you know, that's, that's going to, it's kind of like the Alex Bregman approach, right? Like you might be able to produce more power than you would think because of that. The other thing is his ground ball rate went down. So if he's hitting more fly balls, hitting more line drives, and he's pulling the ball more, I really like that. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting point. I actually looked at his, his pull rate, almost thinking I would see the opposite. I was at first expecting like, this is a guy who, if he could, maybe he's a guy who, if he could pull the ball more, w would have more power. 
but I think you're right. I think the fact that he has the sneaky power he does have, despite the the low exit velocities, is probably because those occasions where he does get a hold of a ball at 104, 105 exit velocity, which which we know he's you know more than capable of. If he's always doing that in a case where he's turning on the ball and pulling it down the line, those are going to turn into home runs more often than they would for someone who's spraying them around the field. And maybe that's going to suppress his batting average a little bit. And so maybe, you know, my hope that he brings up his bat might be a little bit optimistic. But I, I think there is I think there is something there. And I think if you go back and look at even his minor league track record or his, or his multi-level track record, in 2016, he hit nine home runs. In 2017, he hit 10. In 2018, he only had five, but he only played about 70 games. And then he had that 17 in 2019. And then, you know, 2020, he had three, but it was a 52-game season, which is more like nine or 10 over a full season. So he very consistently hits double-digit home runs. And now double digits, low double digits, isn't isn't winning you any awards and isn't going to get you up near that top 50 that we're talking about. But that's what he's done so far, and he has done it pretty consistently. So I don't think that you know a 15, 16, 17 home run season is that I don't think it's that optimistic. I think it's sort of where he should be. The optimistic view, the, honestly, the optimistic view is what that guy on Twitter was was saying to you, right? It's what if he gets a little bit stronger? What if he improves his swing a little bit? And, and all of a sudden that average, you know, he he doesn't increase maybe his, his max exit velocity, right? He keeps hitting that sort of 110-ish mark with his max exit velocity. But his average exit velocity creeps up from that 82, 83 it's been last the last two years to the 85, 87 it's been the years before that, or even up to the 88, 89-ish range, 88-ish range really, where Starling Marte is. You take that and you couple it with that propensity to pull the ball, there's upside there. And how likely is he to tap into it? I don't know. I, we haven't really seen that, that growth in exit velocity you'd like to see. So maybe he is moving the wrong direction. But again, development's not linear. And I'm going to be watching closely because especially early in the season, you know, he does something like sets a new max exit velocity for his career early in the year, or he starts off, you know, starts off April and is is hitting the ball at 88 regularly instead of 83 regularly. I'm going to be buying hard buying hard on that development if it happens because the upside's big. Yeah, it's it and Scott White on the CBS Fantasy Baseball Today podcast talks about this a lot, and it's that in today's game, power for hitters, if all the other tools are there, power is almost like the easiest thing to develop now. And it's it's why I'm, and you're going to laugh, and I realize these two players are, even, even in Robles' case, in, at very different points in their power ability, but it's why I'm still kind of holding out hope that Nick Madrigal can bring more to the table than absolutely nothing across the board. And we don't need to dive into him for this. He's, he's not one of my picks or anything like that. But power can be developed. We're at a point in today's game where Christian Vasquez is hitting 23 home runs in a season. Power can just develop. So in Robles' case, where he has already shown the 17, I do like it. We could definitely talk about Robles for the rest of time. But I do want to dive into, into my pick here, Chad. I went with Carlos Correa. I, I Carlos Correa is still younger than I... Just because he's an Astro, right? You're picking all, picking all the Astros. <laughs> right. So my third Astro in three picks, Carlos Correa. He's still so young. I, 
people don't realize this. He's 26 years old. He's still so young. Look, he needs to start elevating the ball more. He, he's becoming almost way too much of a ground ball oh, hitter, which which you don't want to see with a player of his abilities. Like there's not a lot of speed there. You want to see the power. He hit ground balls almost 50% of the time last year, and that's a concern. But it changed in the playoffs where he began to take off. It's clearly a great lineup, like I've talked about for the third player in a row here. And I still think, so call me crazy, but I still think he's just, just entering his prime. I think in his potential range of outcomes, there is a 100-run, 30-homer, 100 100-RBI, 100 300-average season in his wheelhouse. The average, he would need a little bit of luck, but he's not, he doesn't strike out egregiously. All he would really need to do to reach those power numbers is elevate the ball more. And again, the age, he's not old. We've been hearing about him for a long time, but that's not because he's old. Uh, he went nuts in the playoffs, like I said. I, I think that could be the spark he needs. I'm holding out hope. I, I, would, I need to look up his ADP again. I, I lost it there, but it is not... It's not nearly in the class of the, it's 120 right now. I actually thought it was even a little bit lower than that, but he's going after shortstops or he's going after Dylan Moore in NFBC leagues, which I know is not a shortstop, but come on, we're taking Dylan Moore. I, I realize the speed over Carlos Correa now. Yeah, and Correa two years ago was going 50th. So unless you believe that he has fundamentally fallen apart in some way, and, and it's weird, I mean, he... Going into so going into 2019, he was going 50th. He posted a 380 woba that year, and then fell quite a bit. And maybe it's because the the stolen bases have sort of compl- dried up from him. He also only played half a season in 2019, but he was really good that half a season. And, and that 2019 season also, I think, illustrates what you're looking for from him. So if you go back and look at his career, those sort of 50ish percent ground ball rates with with uh fly ball rates and sort of the low in some cases low 30s and most cases actually upper 20s have been pretty consistent for him and he was pretty good for basically three straight years to start his career with numbers like that the one really great season he had the 394 woba in 2017 he had a 352 BAPIP. he was super reliant on the BAPIP, which makes sense when you're hitting that many ground balls because you're not gonna have enough power to to make up for that, putting the ball on the ground. 2018, he started to hit fewer ground balls and more fly balls. Didn't have a great year. BAPIP was really low. And then 2019, he had that 380 WOBA. He had a 39.6% fly ball rate, highest of his career. 39.1% ground ball rate, lowest of his career. He only had a 303 BAPIP, so it wasn't BAPIP inflated. He just started to elevate the ball more. And it showed. And it was only half a season, but he had 21 home runs in half a season that year along with 42 runs and 59 RBIs in 75 games, 321 plate appearances. So I think you, you we've seen it. It's a brief glimpse of it, but we've seen what happens if he starts to elevate the ball more. You know, one way to look back at this is that he did that in 2019. He came into 2020. They had all of the mess around the trash cans, and Correa maybe more than anyone else seems to have been impacted by it. And I don't mean impacted by it from a, he no longer has the trash cans and now he's bad at baseball way. I mean, he seemed really bothered by the narrative around it. He w- he seemed to be the guy who was most vocal about, you know, people are writing us off or the, like, he sort of almost leaned into the villain role. And, and it, it strikes me that the best reason to do that is if you're just mad about it and it really bothers you. And so if you put him in sort of a, a pot- potentially a bad mental state going into the season, plus everything going on in the world, plus the weird short season that we had anyways. And then you look at like, okay, well, what if what if he just took some time getting himself right again? And that postseason where he had a 362, 455, 766 slash line in 55 plate appearances, but still, 
is more more in line with what he's capable of. The only thing that concerns me is he still didn't really elevate the ball more in that postseason. So I think you're looking for the right thing. I think it's it's can he go back to what he was doing in 2019? Is he another guy who we should just be like, get it? 2020 was weird. I feel like I say that all the time right now. But I think when you're looking for guys who can jump tiers, right? These these sort of who can I draft late that's gonna be way more valuable than their their val than their pick or who's gonna be way more valuable next year. That's sort of the kind of logic I want to use is is don't just assume don't draft him as if last year never happened, but assume last year never happened when thinking about his upside. And that's sort of where I am with Correa is like, where would I be drafting him? If he were fully healthy, getting ready, coming off of that 2019 season, I'd be pretty high on him. And that could be where we are again next year. Right. And, you know, the major concern for most people with Correa started out as injuries, right? I mean, it was first the shoulder injury, and then it was, was it hand? I want to say, no, it was back. He had a back issue, which shoulder and back for a young player, especially that, those are big red flags. And because of that, he really hasn't had a full major league season outside of that, I want to say 2017, where he kind of took off. But those are, those should be behind him now. The shoulder and the back have not really flared up. The back was, I want to say 2018. And since then, he dealt with a rib fracture, which knocked him out, which again, I think made people give him this injury prone label when it was, that's a fluke injury, a rib fracture. Otherwise, when he's been on the field, he's been pretty solid. And I think he's, he's just trying to get back in his groove. And like you said, last year, a little weird, maybe he started to hit his stride in the playoffs despite continuing to hit too many ground balls. But bottom line, whatever excuses I want to give for him, I, I don't even care at this point. I'm still in, I'm not ready to jump the ship on Carlos Correa. So Chad, this brings us to our final category of players. This is where it gets, it just keeps getting harder and harder. Our last category are guys ranked outside the top 200 on NFBC ADP who we think have a chance to enter the top 100. Who are you thinking for this one? So the specific name I'm going to mention at some level represents a a type of player, a class of player. Uh, The name I'm going to throw out there is Chris Sale. And this is an almost feels like an easy bet to take because all I'm betting on is that Chris Sale is healthy when he comes back. But right now he is going double check where he is. He's well lower than I think he should be. He's going around the 250th best ADP. You look at pitchers around him, just as an example, one of the guys around him is Nate Pearson. Um, You've got Ryan Yarborough, James Paxton uh, is going a few picks earlier than him. And I look at those guys and it's like, Pearson's got a ton of upside and Paxton is good when healthy and Yarborough is solid. Nothing special, but solid. It's like, do I really think that let's say 80, maybe 100 innings from Chris Sale isn't going to be more valuable than, first of all, am I really going to get more than 80 innings out of James Paxton? Is Nate Pearson going to be good enough that I'm going to use him for more than 80 to 100 innings right away, maybe in the future, but right now? I don't know. And it, it, would I do I want 150 to 170 innings out of Yarborough? Because let's be honest, most pitchers aren't going over that this year, no matter what. Do I want 157 innings out of, or 150, 170 innings out of Yarborough? Or do I want 80 to 100 out of sale? I might prefer the 80 to 100 out of sale this year. Then you add in the fact that by the start of next season, he'll be another six, 12 months removed from Tommy John surgery and should be fully healthy. He isn't as young as he once was, but he's going to be 32 very early this season. He's not old yet. He's got probably another couple good years left in him. Man, you could take him that late and next year be sitting on an ace. And so it's, and now it's not just him, right? We got Thor is in a very, very similar spot. 
Uh, Noah Syndergaard is actually going even later. His his ADP is outside the top 300. Luis Severino is also outside, or uh, no, Luis, Luis Severino is also outside the top 300. He's almost outside the top 400. So these are guys who, when they come back, you have good reason to believe they're going to pitch really well. They've got good long-term value, and you have to figure out a little bit of your, your league structure. And, and we got a question on Twitter from at Burnedwick, who was asking about this, about stashing Severino, Sale, and Thor. I think if you've got the right league structure where you have enough IL spots, you have enough deep enough bench, it also depends on how your league counts innings, right? Some leagues, you need to pile up innings, and so having a guy sitting injured for a while really hurts. In others, there's an innings cap, or innings aren't going to be the most important thing. Your rates matter more. You have to make sure you can figure out a way to, to balance that. I, I did a, a starting pitcher preview episode of the Autobot podcast that I that I also host with uh, Eno Saris joined us for that. And he was talking about like, could you take one of those guys and then take one of those boring guys who's being drafted late as well? Someone like a Yarborough, someone, even someone like a Garrett Richards or someone like that. Can you then pair those guys together, get a full season out of them? That's super valuable for a pretty low cost. It depends on whether or not your league allows it, right? And we, we talked about that in Autobot because we're focused there explicitly on Auto New. And in Auto New, you've got 40-man rosters. Guys who are in the 60-day IL don't count against your roster caps. You can stash a guy like Sale. There's an innings cap. So as long as you save those 80 to 100 innings to use for sale, you can take advantage of them. There's all sorts of reasons why he makes sense there. I, I look at those formats and I, you know, I play in another league where this year, last year, and then again this year, we're adding IL spots because of COVID. That's great for COVID. It's also going to make it easier to stash a guy like Sale or a guy like Thor or a guy like Severino. I'm, I'm banking on Sale here because I am most confident in his talent between those three. He's the one who I just think is most likely to come back healthy, hit his stride, and be the guy he's been. I think if I was looking, when I look at at, at a cost basis, right? So if I'm ranking them, I'm taking sale first. He is also the most expensive of those three. If I'm looking at it based on price, Severino is actually the one I want. I think he's got a lot of long-term upside. He's the cheapest of the three right now. He may be the least valuable this year, and that may be why he's so much cheaper. But Next year, I think it'll be an interesting question. We'll know a lot more about those three guys, and we'll be able to figure out sort of how you would rank them. But if I'm taking a gamble in a keeper league, I'm looking at which one of these guys do I want to stash, thinking about the long term. Severino is probably the one I want to stash, but I think Sale has the best shot to make that jump into the top 100. Those three pitchers, I think we do kind of, it's, it's easy to look, view them all the same way. But I'm with you, I, I and it's not because I'm a Red Sox fan. I think Sale's talent level and what he's proven is is for now, anyway. We've already established that you're an Astros fan. So <laughs> that's, that's true, actually. Yeah, I was going to go with Yuli Gurriel here myself, but no, I'm only kidding. Um, but I, I, real quick on Severino, he has not been a good major league pitcher since the first half of 2018. He had an ERA almost of six in the second half of 2018, basically missed all of 2019, missed all of 2020. Uh, I have a ton of concern in a keeper league. Would I like to keep him, you know, just on my bench if he's not taking up space and I don't need that spot? Yeah, of course, because at one point he was an amazing pitcher. But I, I, I'm drafting actually Syndergaard with a little bit more confidence there. Reports are that he's going to be the first one back out of these three, which for this year definitely gives me more interest. And we all know the upside Syndergaard had at one point. So assuming you know the Tommy John kind of set him straight. And, and he's going to be a solid, you know, top 30 pitcher at the minimum over the next couple of years, then I'm, I'm back in on Syndergaard. And I, of course, I think, you know, he has a much higher ceiling than that. But anyway, to the point, Chris Sale, I agree. 
awesome in on him. Uh, I, and I actually think the Red Sox approach is why his ADP is down by Yarbrough and Paxton and those names you gave, because they've been very clear that they are going to be patient and take their time with him. But on the other hand, we're kind of looking the long term, like you said, that's the approach we want them to have with Chris Sale. Chris Sale's had a hard time staying on the mound since 2018. We want him healthy. Please, speaking as a Red Sox fan and a fantasy owner, please take your time. And then if we get him back full boat, Chris Sale midseason, and you got him for what would have cost you Ryan Yarbrough, man, that's that's a win. Yeah, I think that's true. I, I think on, on Severino, I'm a little bit more optimistic than you. I look at his, his 2018 second half, sorry, 2019 didn't happen for him. It was like 12 innings. His 2018 first half, he had a 2.31 ERA. He had a 5.57, as you pointed out, in the second half of 2018. However, his FIP and XFIP in the second half were 3.37 and 3.06. He had a 379 BAPIP and a 63% left on base percentage. His strikeout minus walk, his strikeout rate minus walk rate, right, which has been shown time and time again to be one of the best ways to predict pitcher performance and to evaluate pitcher performance, was 22.3% in the first half of that season, and it was 22.3% in the second half of that season. And so I think when you dig deeper into Severino's 2018, he just went from having good luck to having bad luck between the two halves of the season. And when I look at that, I, I think I'm looking for more people who are like, yeah, he had a six ERA and then he missed two years. And so how good could he possibly be? Because like, that's a skill set I want to gamble on. And it does like he hasn't basically pitched in two years. And that does add a lot of risk. But he hasn't pitched in two years, mostly because of freak timing of one injury, right? This isn't a Corey Kluber situation where he hasn't pitched in forever because he keeps getting hurt. And that's a very different thing that worries me with pitchers, especially, you know, when, when we start talking Kluber, especially a guy who's older like that, right? With Severino, he's young, he should be strong, he should be in good shape. He's basically had one injury that happened to happen at the wrong time and cost him most of two years. But if you look at a guy like like Kluber, who got hurt, tried to come back, got hurt, tried to come back, and hasn't been able to stay on the mound. That's where that whole, like, he hasn't pitched in two years really makes me nervous. With Severino, it's just less mileage on the arm. Get him healthy, get him back out there, and I think he can pick up where he left off. And if, if it helps our listeners for what it's worth, you know, I'm in a very deep keeper league, and basically I had two spots for Kluber, Boyd, or Severino, and Severino was my first choice to keep. So I'm not completely out on him. I just, that does concern me. But the luck in the second half there, or the lack thereof, it does make me feel a little bit better that second half of 2018, because that was actually a little startling, those numbers you gave. So real quick, because I want to get to the odd new question of the day, I went with Nick Senzel. I love Nick Senzel. When he got called up, he clearly showed at least 2020 capabilities. He's a guy who's dealt with vertigo. He dealt with an injury that year that cut it short. And then he's also dealt with the fact that the Reds have had pretty decent depth in the outfield and second base has been filled up by Mike Moustakis. So he's been kind of limited in the opportunities he's had. I think now that things have cleared up, he looks like he's going to be an everyday outfielder for them. The pedigree's still there. He's still young. The speed has been tremendous. I mean, this is a guy who's in the tops of baseball in sprint speed since he's been called up. You're telling me I could get 2020 minimum type player who should bat for a decent average that late I'm taking it and I think there's an opportunity because of that pedigree if he does live up to that 2020 that he finds himself in that top top 100 going into next season so Chad any thoughts on Senzel or are we ready for that odd new question of the day I think you're right on on Senzel he just got to stay healthy if he stays on the field I think he's got the capability of, of making a big leap yeah no doubt I like Senzel so you ready for this question let's do it all right Chad so 
I'm probably in a rebuild myself, even though I have all those offensive players in Otnu. And when I look at the like available player pools, and I've been following you on Twitter, you know, the other day you were talking about you wanted Mookie Betts or Cody Bellinger. I'm thinking like those two guys were available in the auction. They're crazy talented players because of the ruthless nature of Otnu, where guys, if you're too expensive, no matter who you are, you're cut. So for somebody rebuilding, how long should it really take? Because it seems like you could just acquire a bunch of talent pretty quickly. Yeah, this is a uh, a hotly debated topic, I will say. And we had an, an episode of the Autobot podcast that I mentioned before. If you go look it up, you can you can pull up the episode about what they call what what my co-hosts on that show call the traditional two-year auto new rebuild. I, I think the name is a little misleading, and I'm not sure it's the only or even necessarily always the best option. But I think you have options. And what this comes down to is when they're talking about a two-year rebuild, what they really mean is spending a full 12 to 18 months rebuilding. And so from that perspective, it's you go into, you you at some point in, let's say, May, maybe even earlier, realize my team isn't ready and I'm going to start rebuilding. And, you know, right now we're looking at, we're, we're getting ready for the 2021 season. You start in, in May saying, not going to win 2021. I'm going to focus in 2023. And that's why they, the reason they refer to it as a two-year rebuild is because it's two years out. But it's really not two years because really what you're doing is taking 18 months to use the trade deadline in 2021 to sell off your overpriced guys, start getting some prospects in, um, ideally get young major leaguers and not just prospects, guys who you are more confident can help you. Then go into the next auction, still focused purely on long-term value. Where am I going to get guys who are going to come together for me for the 2023 season. And then by and then it, by the time you get to 2023, you've got all these pieces coming together. You've spent two years going through a trade deadline where you've acquired assets. That means that you spent one year acquiring assets, shedding the ones who didn't pan out, and then acquiring more. It allows you to build a really strong core. It's a, uh, what I would say is sort of a conservative and safe way to go through the rebuild process. I also think there is an option to be much more aggressive about it. It requires more attention. It requires more, probably a little more luck. It also requires you to be more willing to sort of shoot and miss. I think that that 18 month process is a really good way to build yourself a really strong core and be really confident in it. I tend to believe you can rebuild within a season. And so I tend to believe I, I go into, and I, I said this on that episode, my, my belief is I go into every season thinking I can compete. And so when the auction starts, I am focused on what do I have to do to get my team ready to win? But you have to be honest with yourself and make sure you know pretty early on if that's going to happen. And so I try by by at least by sort of mid to late May, and if not by early June, to have a really good sense of like, this is going well or it's not going well. And we get to that time of year, we can talk a little bit about how do you how do you make that decision. But you have to be honest with yourself. And then once you decide it's not happening, you've got to rebuild aggressively. You've got to sell off the guys you're not going to keep. You've got to sell off probably some guys you were going to keep in order to get more value back. But you have to be really focused. One of the things I think people do wrong when they rebuild an auto new is they think, I've got all these roster spots and I can roster anybody. And like Jason Dominguez is so exciting. I'm going to go, I'm, I'm going to trade Mookie Betts for him. It's like, no, don't do that because he's not going to help you next year. And he's not going to help you the year after. <laughs> and he may not help you the year after that either. And so go out and when you're making those trades, go get a bunch of guys who you think can help you soon. Um, the, the guys I target, like one of my favorite types of rebuild trades to make are where I can trade for either someone who's injured 
right? Go go find a team where it's like, this guy was already producing. I'm going to give you the shortstop who replaces him, but I want him back. And when he comes back in in August or September, it's too late for you, but he'll be ready to go and on my roster for opening day next season. Or prospects who I think are going to get called up soon, prospects who I think will be up most of next year. Um, those younger prospects, I, I hate going after the sort of Jason Dominguez types because there's so much hype around them. I like to go after, like one of the guys I'm targeting right now, even though I don't think he's going to help me much this year, is George Valera. Part of that is Cleveland homerdom. Part of it, though, is Valera's got a really great skill set and loud tools. And he there was no minor league season last year. The reports out of the alternate site were great. If he comes up to AA, AAA, and starts hitting the way I think he can his value is going to skyrocket. And so even if he doesn't help me, I can acquire him cheap and trade him for a lot when I'm ready to, to compete. And so for me, that's what it is. It's 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 try to try to get those guys mid-season who are going to help me next year and then fill in the gaps in in the auction, which is effectively free agency, right? And so it's, it's trying to rebuild within that one, one season. And it's setting yourself up in a spot where you've got the 50 or 60 bucks available to drop on bets if you need an outfielder or a bat, or the 50 bucks you need to drop on Cole or DeGrom if you need an ace. And so building enough of a core that's cheap enough that you can can add to it is the way to, the way to do it. But I think what, what Niv and Justin on the, the Autobot podcast convinced me of is it's not the only way. And, it, and that works really well for me because I, I, I'm sort of a risk taker with this stuff. I like to try to compete. I also find that for me in auctions, I don't do anything that differently if I'm rebuilding or if I'm buying to win. If I'm buying to win, I'm buying the most expensive players because I need their production. If I'm buying to rebuild, I'm buying the most expensive players because I want to trade them in two months. If I'm buying to win, I'm buying prospects so I can flip them for the assets I need mid-season. If I'm buying to rebuild, I'm buying prospects because I'm hoping that they'll come up and be ready to help my team when it's time. So like, it doesn't change a lot of what I do. There's some minor differences, but not not big ones. And so I, I prefer to go in with this. I'm, I'm, I'm winning. I'm trying to win every year. Um, what I was convinced of is that that can be exhausting. It requires a lot of attention. It requires you to like focus on setting lineups every day, every season. And there's some value in saying this year from the auction, from the get go on, I'm out. This year's not going to happen. I'm going to take a different approach. I'm going to focus differently. I'm not going to worry about setting my lineups. I'm not going to stress about the standings. I'm not even going to think about that. I'm going to be, I'm going to dedicate whatever limited time I have for fantasy to how can I make this team ready for next season or even the season after. But ideally, you're only really going through one rebuild auction, right? Ideally, in either of these cases, if your rebuild starts in June of one year and you continue to rebuild through the next year, that's one auction where you're rebuilding. By the next auction, you're ready to go. Yeah, that that makes sense to me, uh, especially from my perspective. And I, and I think, Chad, what we're getting at here is it's kind of similar to keeper leagues, actually, which is ultimately the focus of our podcast, right? Up new and keeper leagues in that like a rebuilding period, it really shouldn't take you that long. And, and keeper settings can have a wide, there's a wide variety of keeper settings, right? And sometimes, you know, if you're keeping 20 guys as opposed to four, a rebuild could take some time. But I think, you know, Otnu offers you this, all, uh, this ability 
to owners where you can certainly try to rebuild at a very accelerated rate. And that's what I was curious about. And I think I'm more on the mindset of you where this can happen pretty quickly. Yeah, I think the beauty of Auto New is it gives you the option and you can do either, right? If you're in a if you're in a league that has keep three, you don't have the option to take a full year rebuild because you can't rebuild over a full year. There's nothing you can do. You're not gonna you can't go get seven, eight, nine guys, build a core, and then stick with them because they're all gone the next year. If you're in a keep 20 or if you're in an auto new league where you've got that kind of depth, like in auto new, you could go out and get 25 guys who are cheap, who maybe on their own aren't enough to win, but give you a really strong core and then go into the auction and buy the five or six guys you need to augment that plus a few other values and be good to go. And that means that if you want to take a full year and a half to really build that core, you can. And, and, you know, Niv Shah, my, my, one of the co-hosts on that podcast, and the guy who, who built AutoNew is sort of the guy behind AutoNew, just won his, our, our league last year by doing that, by spending most of 2019, like the, the end of 2018 and all of 2019, he focused on rebuilding, getting himself ready. He built a super fun young, young pitching staff and got himself into a position where he had like nine potential aces and he only needed half of them to pan out. And then they did, and then he won. And, and so I think you, you have this option and this flexibility in Auto New because of the depth of the format, because of the way trading works, because of how many players get rostered, that you can take your time and you can build something great. Whereas, you know, in, in keeper leagues where you're, you're keeping three or where costs are really high, it's a lot harder. And so the, the beauty of AutoNew is you can take advantage of that and, and do what you want to do. If you want, if you want to be like me and you want to compete every year and you're up for the stress and the risk and everything that goes with that, do it, go for it, push yourself. If that feels like a bit much, or if that's not working for you, if you do that every year and you, you keep ending up in the middle of the pack, like take a step back, take that extra time, focus on a stronger rebuild and go from there. There we go. Chad does not miss the odd new question of the day. Rebuild, folks, definitely should not take any longer than 18 months, but feel free to go for it more often. That'll do it for us at the Keep or Cut podcast. Again, follow us on Twitter, Keep or Cut. That is cut with a K. New episodes every Monday. Chad, next week, we are going to be taking it a little deeper, going outside the top 300 as you continue to prep for your draft seasons. But that'll do it for us. Thanks for listening, folks.